Our text this morning is the remainder of Judges chapter 15, the verses 9 through 20. We'll read those together now. Judges 15, beginning at verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called en It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. So far, our text. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I think we can all agree that our text this morning contains one of the most memorable stories in the Bible. Samson, he breaks his bonds miraculously. He grabs this jawbone that's lying on the ground and you can imagine then the, the jeering Philistines. They come at him one after another, and he smacks one to the left, and he smacks one to the right. A thousand. A thousand Philistines come up at him, and a thousand Philistines fall. They fall all into this one mighty heap. And then to top it all off, Samson himself, what does he do? Well, he begins to sing. He makes... A poem. The scene is memorable. 
we might get carried away with our imaginations, but in any case, even well-respected scholars have made the point that there is humor here. There is something meant to be ironic. And when you look at the other stories of Samson too, you see sort of the same thing. Samson is bombastic. He's over the top. No matter what he does, it seems always that the Philistines get the short end of the stick. It's like a, a roadrunner and coyote sort of situation. The Philistines, they try to capture Samson, but it seems they always fail spectacularly. But it also makes Samson a bit of a tricky character too. Because when we look at him from where we stand today, we're perhaps at a bit of a loss. Is Samson a good judge? Is he a bad judge? Right? We see him with these miraculous and mighty feats of strength. He's delivering God's people. But on the other hand, he seems proud. We see that he lusts after women. But then again, it is the Lord that uses him to defeat the Philistines. And that's really the key. It is. It's that the Lord uses this man. God has chosen Samson to be his own servant. And the more you spend time in these entertaining stories about Samson, you see more clearly that the role of God comes to the fore. You see that it's God who's performing the mighty feats. It's just like Samson says in verse 18, he says, You, O Lord, you, O Lord, have granted this great salvation. It's really the Lord who defeats the Philistines, even in this story. He merely uses a judge and a jawbone to get the job done. And so that's what we'll see from Judges 15 this morning. Our theme is, is the Lord defeats the Philistines with a judge and a jawbone. And we'll see three parts of the text. The first part is that the judge is abandoned by his own people. The second part, that the judge is victorious by his spirit. And third, that the judge is sustained by his God. Our text begins with the Philistines in verse 9. It says, Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. Well, what are they doing here? What are they doing here in Judah? And why is it exactly that they are making this raid on the town? It's unclear whether they've attacked the village. It's unclear whether they've uh, merely surrounded it. But in any case, the men of that town come to them and they ask, they say, why have you come up against us? Why are you attacking us? And the Philistines answer is, they say, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Well, what was it? What was it that Samson had done to these Philistines? Well, if we look back through chapters 14 and 15, we see that there is this chain of events that leads up to our text. Leads all the way back to Samson's marriage. Perhaps you remember the story. It begins with this riddle. Samson says, out of the eater came something sweet. Something to eat, rather. Out of the strong came something sweet. And he poses this question to the Philistines at his wedding, and the Philistines are stumped, so they cheat. They ask Samson's um, a wife to, to wrestle the answer out from him. And because they cheat, Phil, uh, Samson takes his revenge by killing 30 townsmen. 
And so then the next chain of events happens. We see that in chapter 15, which we read. Samson's wife is given away to his companion. Samson comes back. He catches 300 foxes, and he uses them to burn down the Philistines' crops. And so the Philistines respond by killing Samson's wife, by killing Samson's father-in-law. And so Samson takes revenge in another humorous way by striking them hip and thigh. Gives them a thorough beating. And so finally he leaves, he goes and stays by himself in the rock of Etam. And so now we have our text, and the Philistines want Samson. But the question, what are the Philistines doing here, should also be directed at the men of Judah themselves. Because one of the biggest failures that we find in the book of Judges is that the Israelites do not rid the land of the occupants. Not only do they not get rid of the Philistines and get rid of the other foreign uh, or the other pagan occupants, as we read in Judges 2, the people abandoned the Lord himself. And so God sold them into the hands of their enemies. We read from chapter 2. And there the Lord gives some key, key verses for the entire book of Judges and also for our text. He says in verse 20, he says, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, he says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. And here's the key in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. You see, the presence here also of these Philistines is to test the people, to see whether they will walk in the way of the Lord. And it is a marvelous thing. It is a gracious thing because God does not simply say, fine. He does not simply say, have it your way. I'm done with you. Actually, he continues through these Philistines to test. And not only does he test the people, we see in chapter 2 that he also gives a template for salvation. That is, he gives them a way of deliverance. Verse 18, chapter 2, we read about judges. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And so in our passage, we ask the question, are the people going to look to the judge? Are they going to look to this God-appointed judge to deliver them? What is it? What is it that the people of Judah do? They send an army of 3,000 men to capture Samson. Samson must be the problem, they think. And they say to Samson, do you not know do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? They say, your, your actions, Samson, they're not helping. They're harming us. Why are you disturbing the peace? Why are you, Samson, making things worse for us? Samson replies, same as the Philistines do, as they did to me. So have I done to them. The men of Judah, they insist, they say, Samson, we've come to bind you. We're going to give you into the hands of the Philistines. And 
so much goodwill here. They assure Samson they won't kill him. They send 3,000 men to capture him, but they won't kill him. They'll let the Philistines do that instead. And it's a sad situation. Because the men of Judah should have been rallying around Samson as the Lord's given judge. Samson, to this point, he had already shown mighty feats of strength. Samson had been successful in battle. Even more, Samson had been selected from birth by God. He was publicly, he was visibly displayed before the people as a Nazarite. He had long hair. He had to abstain from wine. And the whole purpose of being a Nazarite was to show that this person was a person separated for the Lord. So here's this mighty man. He's visibly dedicated to God, and they look at him, and they would rather abandon him. They would rather reject him. They would rather be rid of him because he makes life more difficult. They think that God's chosen servant is the problem, not the solution. But also, like we read, in addition to abandoning Samson here, the people have abandoned God himself. Because that Nazarite vow has served as also a reminder to all of God's people that the entire nation of Israel, God's people today too, you and me, are separated or set apart from the Lord. These people were God's treasured possession. They were God's holy nation. But they had abandoned. They had forgotten this. They abandoned any notion of an antithesis. Remember what God promised. The Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. That there's supposed to be enmity. There's supposed to be hostility. Between the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent. The men of Judah have abandoned any notion of it. That mandate from God to drive out the enemy. They were just content to let the Philistines be rulers. So long as things stay relatively peaceful. Don't you know, Samson? Don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? And brothers and sisters, we have to ask, is this not exactly our own human nature? Do we? Do we as God's people want enmity? Do we want hostility between us? Seed of the woman? In the world, seed of the serpent. Wouldn't we much rather keep the peace? Perhaps you think that pushing God or pushing the church out of your life will make things easier. Perhaps things you think would be less peace would be more peaceful. Things would be less confrontational. Perhaps you think you wouldn't have to think so hard about your actions. Your conscience would not bother you. Maybe you're tempted to think like this. Don't you know that everybody plays this game? Don't you know that everyone plays this dog-eat-dog game in the business world? Or don't you know? Don't you know that drinking and getting drunk is just what people do? You think, if I can't live my life like this, do you know what that'll do to me? Maybe that doesn't describe you, but what about this? Do you think it's easier to skip devotion or prayer? Too many sins to confess, too difficult to find the words, I'll just, 
I'll just pass for today. Or maybe you think it's better to just to live a stress-free life. And you think being a Christian and being involved is just too stressful. Or maybe you've done a rather good job of pushing God away already. Maybe you've managed to confine him into a little box called Sunday. And the rest of the week is for yourself. See, this is who we are by nature. And we see the same scene reappear throughout history. We see it in the Bible. It happened to our Lord Jesus even, more than once. People who stared the Savior right in the face, abandoned him, turned him away. The high priest Caiaphas is an example from John chapter 11. He thought that Jesus was just a disturber of the peace. At that point, the Pharisees had been saying, if, Jesus, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas thought it was better that Jesus die than cause a disturbance. And besides Caiaphas, even the disciple Peter, he abandoned Jesus when he was confronted. Samson, don't you know that it's better for God's servant to die? Just to keep the peace. This is, this is our human nature crying out. And so the question for us all, brothers and sisters, is this. Do we abandon God when the lifestyle of this world seems so attractive? Do we disown the Savior whom God has sent to us, whom God has sent for us? Do we, like the Apostle Peter, often either say by our words or maybe simply by our actions, Jesus Christ, I don't, I don't know him. I've never heard of him. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent of this. We need to turn again to God, seek his forgiveness. Indeed, even when we turn to him in repentance, God is faithful. He will forgive. And actually, we see God's faithfulness so, so clearly displayed in our text even in this chapter of Judges, because we see the second part of our text, that God gives victory through the Spirit. When God's people, you and me, men of Judah even, when God's people do not act, He does. And Scripture makes it explicit that in our passage, God is acting here. If you look back to the beginning of chapter 14, where this whole chain of events where this whole conflict began, you read something interesting in verse 4. You read this. He says, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. The Lord was seeking an opportunity. You see, it was an opportunity for him to show his salvation it was an opportunity for him to make good on his promises. An opportunity to make good on the promise of Genesis 3. I will, I will put enmity. God puts the enmity. 
It's also an opportunity here for God to show himself faithful to the promise made to Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would dwell in this whole promised land. And so although God's people, although Israel is happy to live without enmity, happy to live in the midst of the Philistines, God puts the enmity back where he belongs, back where it belongs. God's purpose is to give that land to them as their very own. So the Lord acts. He shows himself to be faithful. So with this in the back of our minds then, let's return to the story. You see that Samson has been bound with new ropes. He's taken by the men of Judah to the Philistines at Lehi. Um, Lehi, the name of that place means jawbone. Perhaps it was named, um, given that name after these events. Anyways, when the Philistines see Samson, they begin to shout. We don't know whether it's a shout of triumph or a shout of battle. But in any case, at this moment, the Spirit of the Lord, God at work so clearly, it rushes upon Samson. And the ropes that were on his arms, Scripture says, became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. This is clearly an act of God. It's not merely a strong man breaking these ropes apart. No, this is a miracle. And so then Samson takes a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he kills a thousand men. It is a remarkable. It is a memorable victory given by the Lord. But all we have to do is look at the poem in verse 16 to see that Samson takes all the credit for himself. He says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. We have to admit that this is a brilliant piece of poetry. It has these two lines. They're set perfectly in parallel. There's also some interesting Hebrew uh, wordplay going on here. Because the Hebrew word for donkey and the Hebrew word for heap are spelled the same. And so it seems that Samson has made this poem with a sort of a double meaning. You can see that double meaning if you were to compare different um, translations. The New Living Translation, for example, says, With the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. The NIV says this, says, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. So there's this wordplay. But regardless of this wordplay, we don't find any praise we don't find any thanksgiving to God. Samson glorifies himself. He says, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. And he even names the place. He even names that place after his own exploits. He calls it Ramath Lehi, hill of the jawbone. There's no mention of God at all. It's so ironic because it's so obviously the Lord who accomplishes the victory. The Lord is victorious through Samson. He's only victorious in any way because the Spirit of God rushes upon him. It's a supernatural victory. It had happened to other judges before. It had even happened to Samson himself before. The Spirit of the Lord just filling a mere human being so that they can accomplish these amazing military feats. We're reminded of what God said to Zechariah. He said, not by might, not by power, 
but by my spirit. The fact of the matter is that God's people only have success by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, for a moment, I want you to imagine this. Imagine you are an ancient Israelite. You live in Jerusalem. You live during the time of King David. You live during the time of King Solomon. You live in a time when the nation of Israel is at its peak, the kingdom. You can see the whole kingdom of Israel is united. It's large. You can look up in the city. You can see the palace. You can see the temple there shining on Mount Zion. And so now suppose as that Israelite, you read this passage. You read this passage in Judges. And as you come to the end of the chapter, you read in verse 20, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. You see, Samson was not able to break the rule of the Philistines. Other Chapters and Judges speak of the land having rest, of the land being free. But we don't find that here. Samson was not able to break the cycle of God's people falling into unfaithfulness, being given into the hand of their enemies. So now for you as an Israelite in the time of King David, would you not, would you not come to the realization that what Israel needed way back then was a king? And not just any old human ruler, but a king who would rule in the way that God intended. A king like the one that we find described in Deuteronomy 17. It's a man who follows God's law, whose heart is not lifted up. That is, he's, he's a humble man. See, our passage in Judges 15, it yearns for someone like this. It anticipates someone like this, who can provide something more than just a temporary momentary victory. A king, for instance, like King David. David, like Samson, he was chosen by God. David was anointed. David was filled with the Holy Spirit. But unlike Samson, David, he depended on God for victory. And also, unlike Samson, we read in 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Samuel 8 that David defeated the Philistines, that David brought peace to Israel. And it was through that King David that the Lord fulfilled that great promise to Abraham that God's people would live in the promised land. Our passage yearns for a character, someone like this. But we need to zoom out even further still. Because when we think more broadly of the Old Testament, even Solomon, even David do not break the cycle for good. The peace of David's time was full and it was lengthy, but it was still only temporary. Like Samson, David too himself was a sinner. He too boasted not in the Lord, but in the strength of his own army. And even under the kings, even under the kings of Israel and Judah, the people continued to abandon God. Because the cycle continues. When the king serves the Lord, the people are blessed. But when the kings serve idols, the nation suffers. And eventually it ends in exile. God's people are delivered over to the Assyrians and they're delivered over to the Babylonians. That's because even more than David or Solomon, it's ultimately Jesus Christ that our passage longs for. It longs for a king that is chosen by God, 
empowered by the Spirit of the Lord, who will grant true, who will grant lasting deliverance, one who will truly crush, truly destroy the head of the serpent. Our passage longs for Christ. He's a better Savior than Samson. He was a truly righteous man. He never sinned. He was not proud. He was humble. And unlike Samson, he was not motivated by revenge. Instead, he submitted himself to the will of his Father in heaven. And he laid down his life as the sacrifice needed for your sins and mine. This is a better template for salvation than the judges ever were. Better than any judge. Better than any king. And because Jesus is a better savior, the victory is a better victory. By God's power, Samson could kill a thousand Philistines and sing a song about it. But he had no power to change the hearts of God's people. He had no power to change his own. But Christ's victory is over more than physical enemies. He defeated our spiritual enemies. He freed us from the bonds of sin. So brothers and sisters, look to that greater Savior. Look to God only. God only for the salvation that He has worked in Jesus Christ. Do not. Do not reject Christ. Like the men of Judah reject Samson. Instead, see the powerful work of our Savior. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. The hill of the skull, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. The hill of the skull is a so much a better place than the hill of the jawbone that we find here in this text. And because of this, we have a totally new, we have a totally transformed perspective. In fact, it, it turns the words of the men of Judah completely upside down. Because we know that God reigns, that Christ has conquered sin, and so we're able to say something completely different. We can say, do you not know that the Lord is ruler over us? Do you not know that the Lord is ruler over me? Do you not know that he sits on the throne of my heart? Because of Christ, this world is transformed. This business world is not a dog-eat-dog -dog game. Because of Christ, drinking and getting drunk is not what people do. Because of Christ, when we are afflicted, when we are tempted all around, we are reminded, we're moved to say, well, what then is this that he has done for us? What then is this that he has done for me? He has accomplished such a great salvation. He's brought us from slavery to sin, and he's brought us, established us in the promised land. Brings us to the third part of our text. We see that Samson, the judge, is sustained by God. From slavery into the promised land. You know, perhaps the greatest picture of salvation in the Old Testament is the Exodus. God brings his people out of Egypt with these mighty plagues. He parts the Red Sea. It's so obviously God's work of salvation. No longer were the Egyptians rulers over God's people. What happened afterward? 
while the people began to grumble against Moses and against the Lord, they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And perhaps you wonder even for yourself, how long will it be before I myself forget God and grumble again? How long until I become weary and thirst? Wednesday morning, Tuesday morning, Monday morning. Yes, I know God's salvation for me, but I also know myself to be a sinner. How long? How long until I go back to doing things the way they were before? How long until I'm happy to let the Philistines rule again? Well, brothers and sisters, the answer is found in the fact that the Lord provides. We see it in our text. We see that Samson has become very thirsty. He's thirsty to the point of death, even. And so finally, at this point, finally Samson is moved to cry out to the Lord. He goes from the high of boasting in his own strength, finally being brought to his knees by his own weakness. Samson, too, this great strong man, he's forced to realize that he, too, is only sustained by the grace of God. So Samson cries out to God. He says, you've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And in response to Samson, the Lord graciously, mercifully sustains his judge. He provides water. He opens up this hollow place at Lehi. Not only does he open it up for Samson, he transforms it. He changes it into a permanent spring. And so Samson drinks. We read that his spirit returns. He's revived and he is refreshed. And so Samson gives a name to this spring. He calls it En Hakore. You can see even in your footnote that it means the spring of him who calls. And this whole episode here is actually meant to remind us of the Israelites in the wilderness. It's very similar language, very similar wording. That when they thirsted, when God's people thirst, God split open a rock. He caused water to flow so that people might drink and be refreshed. We also read that this spring is at Lehi to this day. Right? Let's return to our illustration from before. Imagine... You are an Israelite. You live in the time of David. You live in the time of Solomon, perhaps. And you could read this story. You could load up the donkey. You could travel to Lehi and see the spring. There it sits, that same spring, still providing water. God's provision is not only for Samson, but it's for these generations after him. It's continual. It's a generous, generous source of provision. And being weary and thirsty, you could arrive there, see the hollow place. You draw water for your thirst. It's a a beautiful picture of how God always provides for his people. Because God has achieved a great salvation, but he does not now neglect us. He does not now forget about us. He provides everyday sustenance for our daily lives. In fact, he promises it. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He says, with joy, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
But again, we need to zoom out further. We need to zoom out beyond Samson, and we need to zoom out beyond an Israelite. Because there was another man. There was another man who said, I thirst. That man, Jesus, stood in our place under God's wrath that we deserved, the wrath we deserve for abandoning him. This man was God's beloved son. He was a true, he was a faithful servant. But God did not split open the rock for him. Jesus was not refreshed. On the cross, all he received was some sour wine on a sponge. And at that, just enough, just enough to wet his lips and say, it's finished. And unlike Samson, Jesus, his most desperate hour, gave up his spirit. Brothers and sisters, God hears when we call. For Samson, the question, shall I now die of thirst, was answered by the Lord with a no. But for us Christians, with that same exact question, the answer is a resounding no that echoes off the hill of Golgotha. It echoes off the cross. Because we see that Christ has borne God's displeasure against us. And so God now freely gives. He freely gives all the spiritual nourishment that we need. John 4, verse 13 and 14, Jesus says, Whoever, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus sends this spirit into our hearts in order to preserve us, in order to keep us faithful to the end, provide the daily strength that we need to keep walking with him. Just over one week ago, I returned from Kenya and Africa. I traveled there with uh, the retired Reverend Tegelder, and we spent some time teaching a number of students, around 25. And these students had a small number, a very small number of well-known English hymns that they had learned and so we would, we would sing them with um, fairly regular frequency. And for many of these students, they had come from South Sudan. South Sudan is a rather war-torn country. It's been that way for the last decade. Because of this, they're very fond of hymns that use military language. They use military analogies. They really speak to them. They understand what that means. They sing these songs with so much passion, so much gusto. And one of their favorites was, stand up, stand up for Jesus. But from a spiritual point of view, it's not only countries like South Sudan that are war-torn. It's not only ancient Israel, like we read here in Judges 15, where enmity and conflict happen. It's everywhere. This entire world and each one of us is involved in a spiritual conflict. And it's a conflict in which we need to stand up. We need to stand up for Jesus, not abandon him, not get rid of him, 
The third verse of that hymn says this. It says, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. The hymn writer says it so well. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. Yes, unlike the men of Judah, we must stand up for our Savior. But we do not do it in our own fleshly strength. We stand in his strength. The daily strength needed to remember God, it comes from him. The daily strength needed in devotions and prayers, it comes from Christ. Even when there's too many sins to confess or when finding the words is difficult. The strength needed to live a life that involves confrontation with the world, that involves confrontation with our own sinful human nature. The strength to be willing to take the stress and the suffering that comes with being a Christian. The strength that grants the zeal we need to pursue God in every area, in every sphere of our life. Stand in his strength alone, brothers and sisters. Cry out in prayer to God for this strength and for this nourishment, for this sustenance. He has the power, he has the ability to provide, and he promises to do so. It's this strength that enables us to do our Christian duty. The hymn writer says the last two lines of that stanza, where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. That is, be never lacking. Be not lacking like the men of Judah. Duty called. What did they do? Pushed Samson away. Duty calls us. Let us not be found lacking. Let us not be found wanting. Let us stand. Let's stand in the strength of our Savior. Because brothers and sisters, just just think about Samson. He was a judge of Israel. And for what all his faults aside, he was a Savior for Israel. But we have a better. We have a greater Savior. And because of that, we have a better salvation too. So embrace the Savior in faith. Cling to Jesus Christ as the one man, the only man, the great Redeemer. He has no weaknesses. He has no hidden faults. And despite all his mighty power, he is so gentle with those who draw near to him. And those who do draw near certainly find the sustenance that they need for their souls. Amen. Let's respond by singing together about that great Redeemer. Psalm 33 stands as 3, 5, and 6. Mm-hmm.